now convinced. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll read from verse 11 to 16 this morning. Verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they, wait, they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We're going to look at that passage today. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you this morning for your goodness to us. We thank you that we can open up your word <coughs> in this way this morning and, uh, and learn from it. We ask this morning that uh, our hearts and our minds will be ready to receive your word, that your wisdom, your truth, your knowledge will be imparted to us this morning, that we might grow thereby into the image of Christ, and learn more to be like him, to think like him, to behave like him, to speak and act like him. Heavenly Father, and in the unity that we have in this church, we pray that it would be continuing to increase, Lord. And we just uh, thank you this morning, Lord, for your presence here and for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this morning as we uh, <coughs> participate in this meeting that the name of Jesus would be lifted up. In his name we pray. Amen. Today we have something called, after, um, after the service, <coughs> a business, called a business meeting. <coughs> business and church. The word business and church. Do they go well together? Now, there's a bit of a stigma attached, isn't it? When people say the word church, and then they say business... There's a little bit of a, a stigma attached from the point of view that a lot of people in our society think that church is a business, a money-making business. But the word business is used in Scripture about God's work. The word actual business, and we'll look at one of those as an example today, uh, is used in church. And church business meetings are a time when, when we look at how the Lord has been working in his church how the Lord has blessed in his church. It's a time of reviewing the Lord's blessings, his leading, his provision. Actually, on Friday night, we had the first message, the first devotion, which I had the privilege of giving to the children at Kids Club. And I had the daunting question because we started with a list of, uh, of questions that we had to try to answer week after, every fortnight. We're going to try and build on, on uh, what the kids uh, will learn. And I had the question, who is God? How do you answer who is God? And that's a big question. I mean, there's a thousand different ways to answer that question. But I chose to answer it in the most fundamental way because I didn't know who was going to be there. So basically, I, I chose to answer how many gods are there 
and there's only one. Where does God live? That's in heaven. And who made everything? And that's God. Nice and simple. We looked at the Lord's Prayer as, or the Our Father, as the basis of that information and how when the Lord Jesus taught us to pray that prayer or gave us that prayer to learn how to pray, um, he was teaching us God's character and who he was by asking those things. And the, the fourth thing I wanted the, the, the children to understand, or the most probably important part of the whole thing, was I wanted them to understand how God is like a father to us. Because people struggle with that idea of how God is actually like a father. And if you look at the Lord's Prayer, it contains three very specific things that people ask God for and God actually provides. And those three things are, one, we ask him for our daily bread. God provides. God provides our food, sustenance, clothing, everything else around us, even the very breath that we have within us, God provides that. And when we pray to the Lord, we're asking him to provide or continue to provide those things which he so freely gives. The next thing we, we, uh, we looked at was that it says protect us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God protects his children. God watches out for his children like a good parent would. God watches out and protects his children. And we also learn that God disciplines his children and forgives them. God forgives his children. Forgive us our debts. The Lord's Prayer, aimed at a father or addressed to a father, teaches us about what a wonderful parent God actually is. God is the perfect father. He always provides, always protects, always disciplines and forgives his children when we sin. When we meet for the Lord's business, as we will this afternoon, it's these things that we remember about what God's doing in his church because we're reviewing what's happened over the last three and six months and we're saying, look at the way God's blessed the church. We also remember Jesus' response. Do you remember when Jesus was a small child and they went to Jerusalem and then his parents got a little bit frantic because in, the, in their travel back home, they realised amongst all the cousins and friends or whatever that Jesus wasn't around. So they ran back looking for him. And where did they find him? In the temple. Talking, discussing, answering questions and asking the right questions. And his, and his response is very telling with that. And when, when they said to him, what are you doing here? Why didn't you um, uh, tell us where you were? He, and he said, it, the Luke chapter 2 verse 49 says, And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? He was in his father's business, all right? I mean, we all know that he was raised up a carpenter. So he was in his earthly father's business or his, his caretaker father's business but he was also about his heavenly father's business and this is when we have a business meeting what that's what we're saying we are at today we are going to be reviewing the work that we're doing for the lord this is an opportunity for us to examine our own involvement in our father's business to see whether we've been good children obedient have we cleaned up our rooms have we been obedient in the small things? Have we tidied up after ourselves? Have we eaten our 
food properly? Have we you know, spoken nicely? Or have we been disobedient children? Have we left our rooms messy? Have we not cared about the rest of the family? Have we not pulled our weight and cooperated with everyone else? Have we refused to eat the food that God's wanted to give us, that our fathers wanted to give us, because we like lollies and only lollies? Today we get a chance to look at our own service in God's church. And today we're going to be looking at the ministries in this church. Now God's, it's amazing to see the ministries, how they keep on growing, aren't they? As, as the Lord adds people to the church, the, the number of needs grows. But the beautiful, thing is that, the beautiful thing is that the number of people who can fill those needs grows as well. God provides. And that's what we're going to start with in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The first thing I want you to notice here is that not everyone is a pastor, correct? Not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone is an evangelist. Not everyone is an apostle. God provides some of each of those things. Some And who provides them? He does. In the same way, God provides, and this list is not exhaustive here. Is everyone a deacon? No. Is everyone an administrator in the church? No. We'll look at a a few more of those gifts that God gives later. The first thing we need to understand is that God gives the gift of people in the church. It's God who gives to provide and add to the church as it grows. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11 says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. This this. Two verses teaches us something very, very practical, very important. It says, every man has received the gift or the gift. What is that gift? Well, we we know we've received salvation, haven't we? But there are specific things that God... This is not talking necessarily about salvation, because here he's saying the one who speaks, the one who ministers. He says, what you have received, he says, even so, minister, use in a servant-like attitude... The same thing one to another. So whatever God gives me in terms of abilities to serve, I am to use what God's given me to serve you. That's the simple message in this this passage here. If God has, has let me speak, if I have the ability to speak, then God, I need to speak as of the oracles of God. If I have the ability to minister, then let me minister in the same way, as in the ability that God's given me. The important point is that God gifts people into the church. 
In other words, everyone who joins the church is a gift from God to the church. Do you see yourself like that this morning? You are a gift to this church. that nice? Do you feel like a gift sometimes? Have you been unwrapped yet? Have you allowed yourself to be unwrapped yet? This passage extends to every person that the Lord adds to the church. And the beautiful thing is that he determines who goes where. Sometimes this runs counter and true to what we think. You know, we like to say, I've chosen the church that I want to go to. There's some people who like to choose different churches all the time. The truth is that God adds to his church the people. And he does it because he determines that they need to be there. He determines it, not us. And while we may look around for a church that suits us, God provides us to a church that needs us. God has a different angle or different spin on the whole thing. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of yourself, like, if, if ever a day I have to choose a church, should I choose a church that, that needs me? That needs my abilities? That has a hole in this area, that has a need in this area, and I can fulfil it, so I'm going to go to that church. How many people do you think choose a church along those lines? Not many. Most people choose a church based on what they want, what they think that they need. So God has a slightly different idea to the way man thinks of it. The scripture declares that God is both the giver of salvation and the giver of people to the church. That means that every one of you has been put here for a purpose. A very important purpose. You are here for a reason. And if you, if you think to yourself that you're not here for a purpose or that you don't necessarily need to be here or belong to a particular church, then you're robbing both God and his people. Is that clear enough? If you don't belong to a church, if you don't put up your hand and say, I'm with that family over there, then who are you robbing? Think about that. If you think yourself worthless, I've heard this said a number of times. Oh, I'm, there's nothing, I've got nothing good that I can offer. There's nothing good in me that I can give the church. While that has the, the sound of humbleness to it, that also has the sound of disobedience to it as well. Because God says, you do have something to give the church. Every person has something to offer in terms of ministry and service in the church. There is not one individual who is not needed. There is not one individual who doesn't have anything to offer. Not being a member of a church is almost a rejection of God's calling for you. God loves families, does he not? God, the Bible says God hates divorce. God loves families. God loves people being together. God did not create us to get saved and then to be out on our own. To be some sort of maverick out there, doing our own thing, not accountable to anyone or anything. God didn't make us like that. God made us to rely on each other. 
Because if, if that wasn't the case, there wouldn't be so many scripture verses that, say, that, that tell us, bear one another's burdens, edify one another in love. There are so many scripture verses that tell us to, to encourage one another, to love and to good works. For the day approaches very quickly when we won't have the opportunity to do that and the world will be lost. There is a very real reason why God puts people together. It's because God wants it that way. And I'll say it very clearly, the only legitimate place where service for the Lord is learned and should begin is in the church. It's the first place where you learn to serve God. Because if you can't, and I've said this before, if you don't learn to serve God in a church, you'll never serve him out of the church. Never. Don't fool yourself that you can be living a godly life outside of a church because it's in the church where you learn the most valuable lessons. It's together that we actually hear the preaching of the word. It's together that God's called us to, to pray together. It's together that we are called to serve, to minister, to give, to encourage. can't do it apart. We can't do it all in our own homes. We have to come together. In fact, the word church, in its very essence, means to get together. That's what it means. The places where we learn to serve, is it the most comfortable place all of the time? No, it's not. Because you know when you're in a family, are all of your family members easy to get along with? No, they're not. <laughs> Some family members aren't easy to get along with. But you know something? You learn as much from the difficult people to get along with as the easy people to get along with. Would you agree with me there? In fact, some of the most important lessons you learn in life are from people who give you a hard time. Because if everything was easy, if everything was always smooth and everyone said exactly the right thing, did exactly the right, did exactly the right uh, thing as well, and only ever acted perfectly, let me ask you a question. Where would you learn patience? Where would you learn obedience and faithfulness? Very hard, if everything was always perfect. Instead, God wants us and puts us together in a family for a reason, and that's to learn together. When people get married, they get married, what was that phrase they use? For better or for worse? Sometimes there's a lot of worse, isn't there? But you know something? God expects you to stay together, doesn't he? He doesn't say, oh, you know, when things start getting a bit bad and, you know, someone starts getting a, a bit of a, an attitude, that's okay, pick up and leave. No, God wants you to persist. Why does he want you to persist? Because it's working through those difficulties that you actually become a stronger person, a stronger Christian. God wants us to be good children. In John chapter 13, verse 34, the Lord says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, can someone explain to me how that would work if we never met together? 
If there was no local church, someone can explain to me any suggestions as to how the world would know that we love each other if we don't get together. It's impossible. We have to be together. That's what the whole purpose of church is. Because the, the church is meant, the, the world is meant to look at our church, and you know what they're meant to see? Not a bunch of people running around busy and, and going in different directions. When the world looks at the church, this local church, they're meant to see Christ. Pure and simple. Ephesians 4.12 says, Why does God do this? God gives certain people in the church for something. And in verse 12 it says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Who are the saints here? No one's put up their hand, have they? Okay, good. There's one who's put up his hand. God bless you, brother. We have a saint among us. We'll beatify you when you die and you know, we'll give you all this stuff. No, we're all saints. God has called us to be all saints. We have all been separated to him, called by his name. We've been cleaned. We've been set apart for his service. Now, <clears throat> look what it says here. It says God gives these people for the perfecting of the saints, for the perfecting of them. Where are they perfected? Where? In the church. Not out of the church. In the church. We are perfected in his church. And God gives people in the church so that we can become perfected. Nice and simple. Through the ministries of the church, through the, through the people that you interact with in church, who have different strengths, who have different gifts, who serve in a number of ways, you have the ability to become perfected. As a pastor... I'm here to serve you. God has given me certain abilities, gifts, and if I never used them, what would it benefit you? My job is to serve you. My job is to help you to get where God wants you to be. And where does he want you to be? What's the goal for God, for this church, and every person in it? The goal is to achieve perfection. In a unity of faith. To become like Jesus in everything that we do. Look at verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. And the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Hang on a sec. Unity of the faith. Is that what Eddie loves to pray for? That God would give us greater faith? No, it's actually not. It's the faith. When you read the faith in the Bible, it's talking about doctrine. It's talking about what we believe. The faith is the Christian faith. So God wants us to come to a unity of the faith. That we would understand God's word. It's what we know about what we believe and why we believe it. And then it says that we would come to the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, is that talking about the same thing? Is that talking about 
things that we know about Jesus? No. That's the opposite now. That's talking about knowing him personally. Knowing him as my saviour. Yielding to him. Following him. The knowledge of the Son of God. Knowing Jesus Christ better and better in a personal way from a relationship point of view. Notice what comes first though. Knowing about the faith leads to knowing Christ better. Understanding doctrine or the truth from God's word leads us to a deeper relationship with the Lord. God's goal is perfection. That we would know the Bible perfectly. That we would know Jesus our Lord perfectly. And to strive to live lives to his fullness. Like him in every way. And when that talks about fullness, is fullness anything less than full? Fullness is a very descriptive word. Not half, not three quarters. God wants to be fully like him in every possible way. It's not a half-hearted effort that God is asking us for here, is it? It's not, a, it's not a, you know, I'll, I'll try this on a Sunday morning. God wants to do this with our whole hearts. What goal has our Father set for us as his children? Have we achieved it? Have you and I achieved it this morning? I haven't. Can't say that I have yet. Am I trying hard enough? Probably not. Probably get too distracted with other things in the world. If we haven't achieved it, if we haven't gotten to where God wants to be, then push on. Don't look back. That's what God's request is of us. Don't give me a half-hearted effort. Don't look back. Look forward. In fact, look forward so much that you throw your history and your, what was behind you in the rubbish. Don't worry about what's happened in the past. Don't let the past drag you and slow you down from moving forward. God doesn't want you living in the past. In fact... There's not enough time to be living in the past. The more we live in the past, the more we allow the baggage from our past to to wear us down and to to keep us uh, slowed only robs us of the future that God wants for us. Is there anything slowing you down today from moving forward? If there is, drop the bag. I know it's hard to let go sometimes. It's hard to let go of those things that, you know, that I've been carrying for so long. Actually, I um, caught up with an old friend <clears throat> the other day. And we spoke for about an hour. I hadn't seen him for years. So we had a lot to catch up on. And I had this, this, uh, this envelope that I was um, carrying from the post office. And I, I had it tucked under my sleeve. And I had my arm like this, holding it. After an hour of doing that... I didn't realise that my, my muscle had locked up over here. I don't know what was wrong with it. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't lower my arm. It had, it had locked. You know, some, some of us actually do that. Some of us have been doing that. We're in this position with our bags. And we've been doing this for years and years and years. And someone says to us, why don't you drop the bags? I can't now. My hand won't let go. Do you know God gives you the ability to let go? 
God allows you. God has already said, I have enabled you to let go of all the stuff in the past because, you know something? If, the, if God says, I've thrown your sin, I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, can I ask you a question? Can you see that far? I can't see that far. So God wants us to forget about those things and not see them anymore. Don't let the things of your past hinder your future. If there are things that are holding you back from serving God fully today, from giving your whole heart to him, get rid of them. Don't let the weights of this world, the worries and stresses and everything else, stop you from being all that God wants you to be. Verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Did you see the logical progression? When you know the truth, when you know the truth, when you, when you learn about proper doctrine, you know Christ better, you get to know him more personally, then the logical progression is stability in your life. Stability. Security, awareness of what's going on around you because the Lord makes you aware. You don't get swept away by every wind that comes through. You don't get blown away in every different direction. This is the opposite picture of unity. It's what God wants to have. It's being carried in all directions by people who come teaching heresies and false doctrine, by craftiness and cunning, by using very neat little tricks, psychological tricks to get you hooked up. The goal is to grow up in Christ, both as individuals and a church. As we grow in Christ, the world sees a more perfect picture of Jesus in our church. You know, Wednesday evening's devotion, Brother Alan just mentioned it before, was a prayer made by Daniel. And as we, 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 we actually went around and people gave different, different things that they noticed about that particular prayer. It was a, it's a beautiful prayer. Chapter 9 of Daniel is one of the most beautiful prayers you could read. But one of the most significant things about the prayer was that it was a prayer confessing the sins of his people. He was confessing their sins as well as his own. It was what we call a corporate prayer. Confessing together. And this was even though Daniel was considered a righteous man in the Bible. He didn't have the burdens and sins that he knew the other people had, but yet he counted himself as part of those people and said, we have sinned. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. We'll read a little bit of that. I think it's worth it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2 to 8. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity 
and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, unto all Israel that are near and that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. Did you notice his prayer? We have sinned and committed iniquity. Neither have we hearkened to the prophets. Unto us belong confusion of faces. We have sinned against thee. That's a corporate prayer. That's a prayer from an individual part of a body that understands he's part of a people. Daniel saw himself intimately connected to his own people. He was joined to them for better or for worse. He was one of them. He was a part of the body of Israel. And what was Israel's job? Why did God choose Israel? It's that they would be his light in the world. That Israel would be God's standard in the world. That they would, through this people, that the world would come to know all about him. But they failed time and time again. Christians normally have a, a good understanding of how they as individuals should behave in the world. Because, isn't that right? We're representatives of Christ in the world. We represent Christ in the world. So God wants us to behave a certain way and, and make sure that we speak the right things, we say the right things. Because when people look at us, they're meant to be seeing Christ. But few Christians have a proper appreciation of the church, of this body as representing Christ. When people see the church, they're meant to be seeing Jesus Christ. Not just in individuals, in the whole thing as a body. Yes, we've been saved as individuals, but God does not expect us to stay alone. He expects us to become part of the body. Now, that body only exists in the local church. It doesn't exist in the ether. Yes, there's a universal church, but do we get together with the universal church? No, we don't. God has local bodies that meet together. We represent Christ in this world. Let's turn to verse 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. See once again, look at verse 15, speaking the truth. You have to first know the truth to speak it. And by speaking the truth, by people learning the truth, they get to grow up in him. They get to grow up in Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Well, by being knit together. God expects his children and his family to be knit together in a very strong way and all striving in the same direction for the same purpose. How does this happen? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12 verse 4. Romans chapter 12 verse 4. We'll look at a little bit more description of what uh, 
یہ وہ منافعت ہے Romans chapter 12 verse 4 says For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office that means job for we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us with a prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith or ministry let us wait on our ministering or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on ex- exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. We'll stop there. He's added a few more on there, hasn't he? I mean, we, we know about the, you know, the prophecy. We heard that one. <coughs> but he's talking about, well, we know about teaching, we know about ministering. Now he's had an exhortation. That's encouragement. That means the Bible considers, God considers that some people have a gift of encouraging other people. It's a beautiful gift to have. In fact, Barnabas probably had that gift. It's called the son of consolation. Then it says, he that giveth. He means God expects that there are some people who have a giving spirit stronger than other people in terms of their giving. Yes. Some people have a gift of giving. Some people have a gift of ruling. Administration. Being able to coordinate things and manage things. Some people have a gift of showing mercy. People who have, are very strong. When something goes wrong, to come alongside and say, that's okay, it'll be alright. The world hasn't fallen apart. Come on. Everyone has a gift. And if you go back to Ephesians 4.16, look what it says. For, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Every joint in the body is meant to work together. Now, <clears throat> there are plenty of dysfunctional churches in the world. But God doesn't want his church to be dysfunctional. In fact, if the church operates as it should, when the world looks at the church... They're meant to see someone walking in the same direction. So all the joints, all the tendons, all the organs, all working in unison together, all moving in the same direction. I'll, I'll share with you that most churches don't walk like that. That most churches don't look like that to the world. They're not walking in a nice, orderly fashion. They're walking in a somewhat spasmodic fashion. And the world looks at that and they go, what is that? That's not normal. That's not what I think is, is good to see. I don't want that for me and my family. These guys are all over the place. They're divided. They're, 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 uh, they're fighting. There's a lot of infighting. Unfortunately, there's too much of that in the church. Can we answer for all the other churches out there? No, we can't. We can only answer... For where we meet in these four walls here. God has called us to walk properly before the world. So when they see this church operating, they see Christ in the church as a body. Because this church is a body. And every one of us make up a certain part of that body. 
And if one of us doesn't work properly, <clears throat> what happens when your finger gets sore or gets stiff with arthritis? What happens if you... I mean, I've got some arthritis in my neck and it causes me problems. I know some of you have got a lot more arthritis in your joints. When you get arthritis in your joint, it's difficult to do what you have to do. God wants the church to be seen or to be a perfect picture of his son. So everyone has a gift. No one can come to me today and say, I don't belong in the church because I don't have anything to offer. Wrong. You know scripture teaches that everyone has been given a gift. Oh, but I can do it outside of the church. Wrong. God teaches you very clearly that can only be done in a church. This brings us to the most critical point in this this, uh, sermon. Your desire to serve in your church reveals one of two things about you. Your desire or lack of to serve in your church reveals one of two things. It reveals your attitude, firstly, toward the Lord himself. What you think about him. What your attitude is toward him and your relationship to him. A strong desire to serve in the church reveals not only an appreciation of the expectations the Lord has of us in Scripture, but also a willingness to obey him. You understand his word and you're saying, yes, okay, I'll do it. Even though it's hard, I'll do it. And you know something Scripture teaches us that a willingness to obey Jesus Christ reveals your love for him. It reveals how much you love him when you want to serve and obey him. This is our first point of call. Because a strong relationship with the Lord normally translates to a strong desire to serve his people in the church. John 14, 21 says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas uh, saith unto him, uh, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and will come unto him, and make our abode with him. Where do you stand today? How, what's, how strong is your desire to serve your Lord and your Master through the people in your church. When you look at the people in your church, do you see Jesus Christ? On the other hand, a lack of desire to serve in the church may reveal a lack of love for your Lord and your Master. And it translates to a lack of obedience. In verse 24 of John 14, he says, He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. So what does it reveal about your relationship with the Lord? Are you willing to sacrifice yourself for the people in in this local body? If you're not, is it saying something about your relationship with God? The other thing it may be saying, or may be revealing, is your relationship, may be revealing your attitude about the church in relationship to yourself. Maybe revealing something about that relationship. A desire to serve in the church reveals a desire to humble oneself and be at the service of others. That's why Paul preceded that great passage we read in Romans chapter 12 
about the body being knit together and all the joints working together. He starts it off in verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, if you go there, says, For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. God says, don't think, none of us should think of ourselves more highly. In fact, whatever God's given you, in terms of a measure of faith or a gift, use it to the best of your ability. And God doesn't count people better than others in his church. We're all servants. In fact, God's model for the church is that those in leadership have to be under those people who are not in leadership. We are the servants of all of you. And then Paul repeats in verse 16 of Romans 12. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Condescend to men of low estate. What's a man of low estate? Any ideas about what a man of low estate might be? It's someone who we find difficult to sit next to in church. A man of low estate is someone not high on the, on the economic uh, social status here. A man of low estate is someone you might not consider too intelligent. He might be a little bit abrasive with, his, with the way he talks or he, he might be uh, someone who's just a pain, to put it mildly. What, is the, what does the Bible say here? Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Now, why should I do that? Why should I condescend and put myself down all the way down to them and spend my time with them? Well, I've got a very good answer to that. It's because God did it to us. Hmm? How, high, how low did God condescend to us? How low did God come from, from sitting on a throne in heaven? It's pretty high. Can't think of any higher than that. And he condescended to me. A sinner and an enemy of God. God did it to me. And if I can't do it to another human being who, is, who I'm no better than, what does it say about my appreciation of what Jesus has done for me? It doesn't say very much. So the question here is, are you willing to condescend to the people in your church to lower yourself if that's what it takes to serve them. The one who struggles or doesn't want to serve in church or doesn't want to have anything to do with it likes to play along the fringes and just absorb the benefits may have a problem with pride. I'm not saying does, but may. May have a problem with their own pride. Because if you're not willing to lower yourself to serve, then you may have a problem with pride. It may hurt your ego. It may embarrass you. It makes you uncomfortable. But there are two ways in which pride manifests itself. Not just in a, in a high and lofty way, but also in a, in, a, in a lower way. A bit more subtle. 
The first way is an absolute belief within oneself that the people around them are actually beneath them and not worth spending time with or effort in or worth saving or serving. They would much rather be served in the church by, the, by others because they feel it is their right to be served. That's the attitude of most people who go to church today. I go to church because of what they can give me. This is the high end, flagrant end, form of pride. This is the pride, similar pride of the Pharisees. who thought they were above the lower class, who were, they were above the others. This individual may indeed have a problem with people and is easily offended when people make mistakes around them. But they don't match their standard. The ease at which they may be offended may reveal an attitude of almost contempt for people around them. The other end of the spectrum is the low end of pride. The one that looks humble, but really isn't. It's a type that won't get involved won't get their hands dirty, will not risk to help or serve others because they feel they have nothing to offer that might help other people around them or that they're just not good enough. But this is another form of pride, just the other opposite spectrum of pride, revealing itself or manifesting itself in a different way. Because not getting involved means they will never risk making a mistake. To keep your hands clean means I'm never going to look dirty in front of other people. Never have a chance to get criticised for doing something. I'll never have a chance of being ridiculed or thought badly of because I wouldn't want people to think badly of me. So I won't risk doing anything. This is another form of pride and I think you can understand it. They are afraid that their pride will be hurt. So they willingly disobey the commandments of God to protect their own ego. You know something? It's risky doing stuff in church. It's risky. The more you do, the more chance you get of being criticised. Would you agree with that? Because there's people always watching what you're doing. And they're waiting for you to put a foot wrong. But you know something? You'd rather be doing and making mistakes as you're going along than sitting back and not doing anything at all. The ego is not worth protecting. If that's, if, if that's what you're feeling today, it's not worth protecting your ego. What are you protecting it for? Make yourself vulnerable. Step out. Do something. Take a risk. Isn't that something? Jesus took a risk. Jesus took a risk and the Bible says he endured the shame. He endured all that shame of being hung on a cross as a common criminal in front of everyone else to see, stripped of his clothes, made a mockery of, beaten, spat at, and what are we doing? Are we scared to look foolish in front of someone else? Jesus endured the this, this shame for my sake and for your sake. He allowed himself to be made a spectacle of 
so that we would be saved. You know, when we say we carry the cross, one of the most difficult things about the cross is the shame. To carry a cross means it's a very shameful thing. Are you carrying your cross daily? I'd rather carry my cross daily and be criticised for it daily. Take a risk. Don't be afraid of being criticised. Because you know something? I'd rather receive the criticism of men, even if I mess up, but I've put my heart into something for the Lord, than to one day stand before God himself and say, God, I did nothing because I was afraid. And if you do get criticised, if you do step out, if you do take a risk and do something for the God in the church, you know something, you're going to be in very good company. Because Moses built an ark for over 100 years. And you know how much criticism he would have copped for that? When it never rained before? You know when Jeremiah was calling out to his people and saying, they're going to come and destroy us. They're going to come and take the city. Repent. You know how much criticism he copped for that? When Moses was first called by God and he, and he went to Pharaoh and he said, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said to him, you know something? Your people have got too much time to be mucking around, going out, doing sacrifice to your God. You know something? Don't give them any more straw. Do you know what happened to Moses? His own people nearly killed him. Because he stuck his neck out for, to follow God. Abraham. Abraham would have been a good one. Imagine the relatives. What are you doing, Abraham? Oh, we're just packing up. We're, uh, we're just heading out. Where are you going? Uh, I don't know. Not sure. Well, what do you mean you're not sure? Well, God's told me to go to this place I've never been to before. He's going to give it to me as a block of land. Can you imagine the criticism? He would look like an absolute fool in front of everyone else in his own. He was actually respected. All the men in the Bible, all of them, received criticism. They were abused, they were killed, they were mocked, they were everyone. You'll be in great company if you stick out your neck for the Lord. I guarantee you that. The question is, are you willing to stick your neck out? Because I can't think of any, any other job worth sticking your neck out for. Most of us kill ourselves at our jobs, our worldly jobs, don't we? And we come in here on a Sunday and I ask everyone, how are you going at your work? Oh, mate, what a week. So much stuff on. You know, we, we actually work really hard. And that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. But how hard do we work at serving God? How much sweat do we, do we, do we uh, expend on actually serving him? How much risk do we take to serve him? If you struggle in this area, make a commitment today. Make a commitment and say, Today, Lord, I'm going to put my past behind me. I'm going to put my, my pride away. And I'm going to serve. And you know something? I know it's going to be hard. And I know people might even laugh at me when I make mistakes. But I'm going to serve you. Because you're worth taking a risk for. Today we're going to pray for those people who have put their names down to ministries in our church for the next year. It may be as a leader, a helper, a teacher, even as a support person if something goes wrong. My prayer for you today is, if you have put your hand up for a ministry, but you'll do it faithfully, then you'll stick your neck out, then you'll serve God with all your heart.
And if you haven't put your name down for something, hey, there's still room. There's still room to get on board. My prayer for you this morning is, if you're a member of this church, that you understand the importance of your place in this church. And you know something? If you're not a member of this church, or a church, that you would understand the importance of being one. Be counted amongst the family. Be counted as part of a group of brothers and sisters who are seeking to serve God, who aren't perfect, who make plenty of mistakes. God has asked us for it to be this way. What's your attitude to serving your Lord this morning? What's your attitude? Only you and God know that. I'll let you answer it for yourselves. God bless you.